0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
1: I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to the assignment with Adi Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam go, so welcome to the show. Hey everyone, thanks for being here. Today, I am joined by actor Glenn Terman. Now, Glenn has been acting since the age of 12, when he landed a role in Lorraine Hansberry's seminal play, A Raisin in the Sun. You'll hear about that in a moment. Since then, Terman has been your kind of consummate working actor. On Broadway, in Hollywood, in TV shows and movies, he's done it all. From his breakout performance as Preach in Cooley High, to his latest turn as Dr. Senator in the new season of Fargo, Terman has been a quiet force. But most recently, he delivered a potent performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Based on the August Wilson play, it's about the legendary blues woman recording an album of her greatest hits on a hot Chicago day in 1927. Terman, in the role of Toledo the piano player, stars alongside Viola Davis, Coleman Domingo, and the late Chadwick Boseman. Here's a clip from the trailer.
2: A one, a two, a you know what to do.
0: Uh,
2: This would be an empty world without the blues. uh, I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. They want to call me Mother of Blues, that's all right with me. It don't hurt none.
1: <laughs> right out south and
2: I Where's the, uh, the horn player?
1: I got a friend.
3: Come on,
2: Levy. You rehearse like everybody else.
3: I'm gonna get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? I know what I'm doing. Go on and fire me, I don't care. When I got there, they began to say. The people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break.
0: Now Terman is one of those actors you've seen on screen for decades. But what I wanted to do in this talk was to better understand that man on the screen, where he comes from and how he got here, his marriage with the late Aretha Franklin, a family tragedy he's had to live with. A producer of ours said that this talk felt like Terman and I sitting in a diner when a young person and an old person could reasonably sit in a diner. It moves quickly and slowly, oscillating back and forth between past and present. Rose-colored reflections of youth followed by memories that feel, at times, almost too heavy to speak of. And then memories that feel Almost too joyous not to speak of. Terman reveals himself in fits and starts. He is, in this brief exchange, as human as I've experienced on the show. And I'm grateful for him sitting with me. So, thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, here is Glenn Terman. What do you prefer as an introduction generally? I, do I go Mr. Terman? Do you want me to go Glen what what is what do you prefer?
3: Emmy Award winning actor Glenn <laughs> <Terman>. <laughs> They asked me what, what so how did life change for you after you won the Emmy? I said, "Well, now I don't have to go through my in, in, entire catalog of uh, movies and shows that I've been a part of, so that uh, my introduction can now just go Emmy Award-winning actor." So
0: it's deserved, and I'm and I'm glad I'm glad to have you here. Tell me your first name again, Sam. Sam. Yes, I'm sorry, Sam. Thank you. Uh, here's where I want to start. You're on location filming in Mississippi right now, right? Right
3: women of the movement.
0: We are talking on a holiday, which is uh, fairly unusual, but I think it speaks to something, um, which is this quote you have. You said, I'm a blue-collar guy, a blue-collar actor. I go to work with a lunch pail, punch out at the end of the day, and go home. Where do you think that mentality comes from for you?
3: Well, you know, I started working with Sydney Portier and Ruby D and Lorraine Hansberry and Lloyd Richards, the director of the original production of A Raisin in the Sun. I was a youngster in this production. So if I was late, I heard it. And I heard it from everybody, you know. <laughs> I heard it again and again. You know, if I was if I was missing my cue, if I was late for my cue, oh boy, you know, I I, I heard about it. So, I developed a sense of the import of that pretty early in my career.
0: You were age twelve when you got that job. I think that's around nineteen fifty nine I don't think they let twelve year olds be late to work When now? No, no back <laughs> maybe they do now. Back then, I don't think they did because like, your mom would take you to work, right?
3: For a moment, for a minute, but not not after I got going, no. Not after the show was running on Broadway. I'd go to work by myself, on a train, do the show and get out at night, go back home as a twelve year old.
0: Again, this is the late fifties, early sixties. You're you're twelve years old with no parents. You're working with Sidney Potier and, and Ruby D. Did you ever think Wow? A lot of my friends really aren't doing this. This is unusual.
3: Not really, no. As a matter of fact, I, I was thinking just the opposite. I was thinking, what are my friends doing? I, I, <laughs> you know, I, what are they doing? I, I, I want to go get in trouble with them, you know. That's, that's the more fun thing to do. This was repetitive, but it, it had its own sense of fun as well. But it was an, an adult world.
0: You were acting while you secretly wanted to be Jackie Robinson.
3: You know, sports was the more common thing. Certainly going to work at, and even if you were a kid going to work, you know, I mean, as a kid, I had a shoe shine box and st- all that kind of stuff. Everybody kind of had a hustle that they that they they did, you know, carried groceries for uh, people from the, the supermarket, that kind of thing to make an extra buck or an extra quarter. I think the more luring thing was the notion that I would get to travel to uh, overnight on a train to Chicago and would be able to stay in Chicago for a little, and also that we were going to go to Philadelphia and we were going to go to New Haven. So I think the idea of traveling was the more luring thing rather than the performing and all of those different things that came with it.
0: Why was that?
3: Because I've always liked the thought of traveling. You know, I would venture outside of my neighborhood, even as a, a youngster. I remember my my mother told me that, that I got lost one day and d- drove everybody crazy. They wondered what had happened to me. I was gone all day as a, like a seven or eight-year-old. And then I showed up back at the house and they said, well, oh, they were furious, you know. And uh, and I said I was at uh, uh, Rocky Mountain. <laughs> 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 And I didn't know. I didn't know how to tell them. I didn't know how to, to explain to them where this Rocky Mountain was. You know Now we lived on 147th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. After all of that, a year later, we were in a car, and we drove past a park. But then I pointed out, "That's Rocky Mountain." <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so they realized that at seven years old, I had vanished and somehow made it. 20 blocks away from the stoop, you know, the neighborhood, the the building that we lived in, all the way down to 20th Street from 150th to 47th Street. I think that's when I got to whipping, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you were this curious kid. And after you do a Raisin in the Sun, you continue to work throughout your teenage years. But then in 1967, at the age of 19, the work slows down. You get married, you have a kid, and to make ends meet, you take a nine-to-five job as a driver for a furniture store. At that point, did you think it was possible that your dreams of acting may be deferred?
3: I was I was always looking for acting work. You know, backstage is the paper that you, you read as an actor to see what jobs are being auditioned for. So I was always reading backstage. And one of the things about this this furniture company that you have to understand is that it was a stop for many actors. The big thing that it bragged about was the fact that Steve McQueen used to work there. So I wasn't the only actor working for this furniture company, you know. Uh, there were a couple of guys. Buddy, I remember Jack English, he, he worked there. There were enough guys to talk about acting or what jobs were going on and so on and so forth as there were guys to talk about, you know, sticking up gas stations <laughs> and that kind of thing because it was a it was a pretty rough environment down on the docks it, it was the, it was the environment of uh, on the waterfront. You remember the movie on the waterfront? Of course. The meat hanging and all in the hooks and you know? all. Well, that's Gansevoort. It was down around Gansevoort before Gansevoort became so chic and the good thing about it was that the owner of the company julie Kay, would not get so pissed you couldn't you didn't have to necessarily lose a job because you took time off to go for an audition so i had a little leeway a little clout you know was able to do that i was always searching for the the next acting gig at
0: 1920 going out for these auditions working these nine to five jobs Were you ever nervous about your future or or uncertain about where you were going to go with the responsibility of having a kid?
3: It was no laughing matter, you know. It was uh, life dealing out the cards, and some of those cards were not favorable.
0: How do you get through that?
3: Two things. Ignorance and uh, hard-headedness. You know I'm hard-headed because my mother would say, stay on the stoop, and and play right here, and I'd end up down on 121st Street. (laughs) That kind of behavior helped me pursue beyond my boundaries, go beyond my boundaries, no matter what the consequence. And uh, a certain ignorance is bliss, you know, naivety. I was too hard-headed to quit.
0: What were you ignorant of?
3: Oh, the consequences. The consequences are that you have a family, you got, they've got to eat, you've got to keep a roof over your head. How are you going to do that? Well, anybody who's got any sense of smarts about them would say, this, you know, this is not an easy situation. But the, the point is, to, how badly do you want what you're pursuing? And uh, I wanted it badly.
0: Was it hard to remain optimistic?
3: No, because I knew it was possible. Don't forget, I started out on Broadway. I started out at the top. So I knew where the top was, and I knew I belonged there. It was a place that I could, uh, uh, not foreign to me. It was a place that I could strive for. It was accessible. So it wasn't a pipe dream for me.
0: Do you remember the moment where you thought, okay, I think think this is going to happen?
3: Yeah. As you said, I was I was a truck driver and saw in the paper that there was a job, a play being directed by Lloyd Richards. and Lloyd Richards was the man who hired me on for Raisin in the Sun. So I was actually driving the truck when I read that in the backstage and went with the truckload of guys to that audition and audition with the guys in the trucks, screaming and hollering and cussing me out because I left them stuck in the truck while I ran in for this audition and then came back out and I got the job. And I was rehearsing and gave my notice at the trucking company and the guys, Julie and all of them, they wished me luck and you're on your way, kid. Congratulations, you know, and the kid's going to make it. The kid, hey, we got a big time movie star over here. That kind of thing, you know. <laughs> it was just a, a great moment. I, I said to myself during rehearsal, you know, with a stellar cast, Barbara Ann Teer, you know, and, and Roger Robinson, and uh, Wynn Hanman was the producer of this. Wynn Hanman from the American Place Theater, so it was a notable company. Opening night on the way to the theater, Sam, back to our original point, I was so elated because it was half hour. It was going to be half hour and I was going to make sure that I wasn't late for half hour. And I looked into a store window to see the time and I was just a block away from the backstage and I saw that I'm on time. I'm good. And this is opening night. Sam, I shit you not. It's opening night. And two cops were standing in that doorway. And I took two more steps. And one of them says, hey, you get over here. I said, what? "Say, you get over here. Get over here. I said, what? Oh, up against the wall. I said, up again. oh, I said, oh, no, 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 no. So, so I, I can't do this today. Not tonight. Not now. I can't play tonight. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> I, this. This is not the time for that game. OK. <laughs> up against the wall. They put me up against the wall, Sam. They frisked me. And it was a time, it was in the early 60s, so they had a thing called a Civilian Review Board because a lot of that harassment was going on at that time, like it's not now. And um, because they had the Civilian Review Board, I asked the officer, badge number 1770, I asked him why he was stopping me and that I needed to have his badge number. And boy, oh boy, what did I say that for? That pissed him off and he took that stick and he bounced that stick off of my little skinny legs and threw me in a car and took me to the precinct. And that was opening night of a play that I was starring in that night, right down the street at the American Place Theater. So yeah, as soon as I said to myself, I think I can make a living doing this, life, reared its head again and said, yeah, well, there are a few few caveats, a few things <laughs> that are givens, you know, so don't forget this lesson.
0: Isn't that something? That these two realities can sit right next to each other. You feel you've made it, and yet the world you were living in said, not so fast.
3: Well, that's that's a lesson that you learn, you know. You... The point isn't about making it the point is the journey the journey is what makes the experience worthwhile it's not getting to be anyone in particular it's who you are when you get there as a result of the journey
0: that night when you were supposed to be on stage Mm -hmm. who did you call
3: i called the theater and of course they were furious because as I was being searched on the street, the, the mink coats were walking right past me. They were on their way to the theater to see me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, the little ladies with the blue hair and the whole thing, and I'm up against the uh, wall, you know? So I uh, called Wynn Hammond and Lloyd backstage and told them that I was arrested. They were gonna book me downtown. Then I I called my wife and then I called my aunt. And uh, I told my wife, don't try to come get me that my aunt would get me, because where they were gonna take me down to the court was not too far from where she lived. And Wynn had told me, don't worry, he'd come down and he'd bail me out, which he did. But I was furious. I'm laughing now, but I was, you wonder how people get chips on their shoulders. That became a major chip. A major chip for a
0: long time. Growing up in the era that you did and in the household that you did, again, I think it's for context people must know in your childhood home you had people like James Baldwin around. How conscious were you of race in that moment?
2: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. This event sounds like your thing. I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
1: Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Oh, I was very conscious of it. The moment I moved from Harlem to the village, we became very aware of race. Because there were very few black kids in my neighborhood in the village at that time. So even though the village was a very progressive area, You know, it was not uncommon to see black and white couples at that time, you know. Uh, Down there, it it wasn't uncommon to see gay or lesbians or, you know, couples in the area. It was known for that kind of leniency, the village, as it still to a large degree is. But the people who were like the nuts and bolts of the community, the superintendents of the buildings and so on and so forth, were still some first or second generation or third generation Irish or Italian. So there was still a lot of elbowing for your space. The N-words, the other negative words to describe people flew around pretty easily. Not to negate the fact that after the fight, you know, you might become great friends, but you had to stake your claim for it to end in any kind of fairness.
0: These kind of dynamics you're describing between your friends and the environment you came of age in play out in the film Cooley High. This is a movie that came out in 1975, but why do you think this film and your work in it has endured as it has?
3: Because it's, 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 it's just not only did it make me a folk hero, but it, in itself was like the ballad <laughs> you know, that goes along with being a folk hero. You know, it's, it's that song. It's all folklore has its John Henry song or it's this song or it's that song, you know, and that's what Cooley High is. It is that song. It is that folk song that gets being passed down from generation to generation. No good for you, for you. But what can I do? Baby, 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 baby i do, do, do so much thinking of you. you. Bomb baby. Bom, bom. Oh, oh Pootie, you can't sing no man, bass. He's almost Lieutenant, Tyrone, you'll be baritone. <laughs> Willie, you be bass and preach. Stay out of it. Hey, you square still walking? Come on, check out some of this luxury, brother. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, man, we y'all get this wrong? Don't worry about it. Hey, this is bad. You like it, huh? Yeah. Ooh. Hey, y'all, come on. Not me. Hey, be cool, man. What's wrong? You scared? Scared? Hey, come on. Hey, Preach, I know you ain't job, man. Come on. Come on. Get them turkeys. I knew what, what it was going in. I had worked with both the playwright and, and the director before and I knew their integrity and their work. So I felt I would be a part of something that everyone was doing their best. Well, I was excited. It was my first lead role in a, in a motion picture.
0: You have a quote. You said, when I was a young man starting out, some said that If it had been a different era when it came to acknowledging black performers for awards, that's what I would have received back in the day. But back then, they weren't giving us our propers.
3: That little story I told you about being arrested on the first day, opening day, opening night, let me know an important lesson. Things are going to be the way they are going to be. Your job is to keep on keeping on. So that's all I do is I keep on keeping on. I, I don't have time to worry about what that was going to be or what I should have deserved or what I should have gotten or how it would have worked out if it, if it was fair or not. I don't do that.
0: Have you passed that mentality on to your kids?
3: I believe so. I don't know if they got it from me, but if, if they did... I know that they're all they're all troopers and they've all kept on going, you know, and things have not always been easy.
0: In two thousand eight you're in a very special episode of in treatment, which is how we now must refer to you as Emmy Award winning
3: <laughs>
0: Glenn Turman. Yes indeed. I, my apologies if I did not properly announce you that way.
3: It's okay. Don't let it happen again, Sam. Okay, okay. Yeah.
0: You got to hold me accountable here. I, I bring this episode up, Emmy Award winning actor, Glenn Terman, because... <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I, was, I was making sure you were listening. I was, I was making sure you weren't checking out. <laughs> hey, look, we got to laugh because so much of this has been so serious. And I know this performance is a serious one. And I know it is one that has not just meant a lot to your career afterward, but spoke to all kinds of parts of you and your past. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. When you're doing that work, and I know it demanded that you dig deep into your past and, and, and yourself as a human being. mm
2: mm-hmm.
0: How do you make that performance and how do you relive the pain that that work must have caused?
3: You hit the key word, as a human being. If you look up the word human being, one of the definitions is existing in a perfect state, lacking no essential characteristic. The characteristics of the characters that I play, I try to tap into that human part of them. And that's what we have in common because that's what's going to translate to everyone in the audience, is that human element, that human being transcends race, creed, color, all the bullshit. So that's what I dedicate myself to. And yes, it's it's painful. And yes, it's sometimes cathartic and sometimes detrimental. But it's what I, as the profession I'm in, took an oath to do as best I could. That human being part of it is the main ingredient, Sam. So I go to that human place.
0: What you did in that performance and what you've done throughout your career, and I'm sure you know this, but... You know, people use art to not only better understand themselves, but to get by, to keep going. Mm -hmm. As you've said, is your kind of mantra. You just keep on. What I'm trying to ask you, and I'm doing a sort of stumbling job at it, is (laughs) how do you get past and process losing? Son as you have, and putting that into your work?
3: Well, you don't get past it. That's, that's the thing. You never get past it. I wouldn't get past it even if I weren't an actor. I wouldn't get past it. You learn to live with it. And in learning to live with it, it can be, in my particular business, it becomes, I don't want to say a tool, but it becomes a part of my creative process. I don't ignore it, I don't run from it. It's usually at my fingertips and it's there whether I want it to be or not. It's in my life whether I want it to be or not. But you don't get past anything. No, it's as it's, it's as fresh now as it ever was.
0: You live with it. Yeah. And how do you think you have lived?
3: It's taken its toll. It's taken its toll. It's like the same thing that happens with soldiers who come home from war. It takes its toll. And it takes its toll on you and loved ones and Strangers, Mm. but it's a, it's a, it's who you are.
0: This year, this pandemic has forced everyone to really consider what do you want to do with your time? Because it doesn't go forever. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: What has this past year done for you? What has it made you think about?
3: There are a few different components to the situation. One thing is I grew up an only child, so. I'm not unfamiliar with spending a lot of time pretty much alone, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I don't get lonely easily. I kind of know how to fill my time. Sometimes it's with too much thought in my own head, but that was what as a kid made me have such a vivid imagination. So that imagination is served with time like this or it, it is called into play in time like this One thing that's been great is I've been playing the piano. It it stems from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and playing the character Toledo. I just continue to go on with that and Mm -hmm. having a wonderful time developing that character. My wife and I have had a great time together. We really do still like each other. (laughs) we <laughs> were so far so good you know we just celebrated 29 years married uh yesterday as a matter of fact and uh she's still all right she's still an okay kid you know <laughs> not a bad girl you know so that's been wonderful to to, to come to know you know um on location now and miss her dearly and i've got the, the grandkids and the, they just keep popping out i guess they've my kids have had a lot of time to themselves to pop <laughs> time, time. So all of a sudden here come all these little ones, you know, in this last year. they say, Oh, okay, I see what this COVID uh, quarantine has done <laughs> for you guys. And so, <laughs>
0: so. I, I've never heard a parent describe their kids having kids as I think they've had a lot of time on their hands.
3: <laughs> you know, pop, 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 pop. So, you know, that's that's great, you know, to, to, uh, to see all of that that's happening. The work continues to come, and that's a great thing. So here I am, riding it out like everyone else.
0: Before we get out of here, because I know we have to go, we've talked a lot about your work, but I'd be remiss to not mention the late Aretha Franklin and all that she brought into this world. I know you two were married for a time and remained close until her passing. So if you're open to it, I wanted to watch this performance with you.
3: All right, let's see.
0: This is Aretha Franklin in 2015 at the Kennedy Center honoring Carol King with a song called A Natural Woman. What do you think when you see that?
3: Well, there are so many moments and instances that I can look at from perspectives that have not been captured on film. So I, I think of that one is a, is a wonderful moment. But it put in mind another instance that I was there for when she and I were married when she went to sing for the Queen Mother of England. That moment was amazing as well, as was this. But not captured. And I, I think there are not many who can relay it. But I'll tell you, Sam, because I like you. We were in Europe for her performance for the Queen Mother. and in the audience was Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And Sammy Davis Jr. was making the announcement to introduce Aretha. And I'll never forget this introduction. Sammy said, ladies and gentlemen, Queen Mother, it's wonderful to be here with the royalty, Britain's royalty. But we have royalty of our own in America. We have the Duke of Ellington. We have the Count of Basie. And ladies and gentlemen, the Queen of Soul, Miss Arisa Franklin. And she came on and tore the house down. So it was a wonderful moment, and that put me in mind of that.
0: That's wonderful. (laughs) My last question for you, because that video, I have to say, I've watched it probably a hundred times. And every time I watch it, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: it is like how I felt watching your work in Ma Rainey or something in that performance and in treatment, or even we go back to Cooley High, there is something in that, that is so human. And that is the power of, of all this. I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, are you proud of what you've done? Mm.
3: That's a beautiful question, sir. Yes, sir, I am. Yes, I am. I was, I was given a gift. My wonderful mother saw it before I did, steered me in that direction, and I hope I've done her proud in this journey.
0: Glenn Terman, I thank you very, very much for doing this with me.
3: Sam, it was a pleasure. Good meeting you.
0: Please stay safe. You too, brother. That's our show. Special thanks this week to the good people at the Anderson Group. I'd also like to thank Mr. Glenn Terman. His latest role is in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is available to stream on Netflix right now. To learn more about Glenn and his work, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com if you'd like to hear other conversations with brilliant actors. I'd recommend our talks with Sam Waterston, Keith David, Matthew McConaughey, Edward Norton, Laura Dern, Holland Taylor, and Pam Greer. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you do happen to use Apple, iTunes, Apple Music, whatever it's called, leaving us a review there is still a great way for new listeners to find our program. If you'd like to join our mailing list... Drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo, illustrations by Krishna. Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our editor for today's show is David Harding. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrizak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay safe and so long.
2: Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
1: Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.